terms of the context, we uh, focus this session on uh, recent changes in Saudi Arabia uh, and the implications uh, nationally, regionally, and globally. And if we go in reverse order uh, there, uh, just to uh, have a bit of a context, uh, we're talking about Saudi Arabia being a founding member of the United Nations. Indeed, several uh, members of the ruling family were present in the meetings in San Francisco and later became the monarch, the head of state. Uh, Saudi Arabia is also a founding member of the League of Arab States. Uh, it's long been a prominent member of the World Bank and the IMF. <laughs> and in terms of its energy industry, it has the largest uh, integrated uh, uh, oil company uh, on the planet. And when people used to laugh at Saudi Arabia with regard to its effort to have a petrochemicals industry and industry and manufacturing, uh, generally, um, people laughed and said, look, nowhere in history has there ever been uh, an industry established in a desert. And yet Saudi Arabia has done so with uh, secondary and tertiary industries uh, closely associated with the oil and gas uh, production side of country's economy. <clears throat> and the Saudi Arabian Basic Industries Corporation is either the largest uh, corporation of its kind dealing with petrochemicals uh, or the most profitable of those in the field of petrochemicals. Starting from zero, uh, within the uh, last quarter of a century, it has achieved that kind of niche. And not just that, but in the aftermath of the 2007-2008 international financial liquidity mortgage housing uh, crisis. Uh, Saudi Arabia was among a handful of countries uh, in the Gulf Cooperation Council of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, uh, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman, who in essence, when the United States Deputy uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury came to Saudi Arabia, to Qatar, to Abu Dhabi, to Kuwait, uh, literally or uh, metaphorically rather, but begging bowl in hand, asking uh, for a bailout. That uh, that was a chorus of saying, look, we're tired of being with you on the crash landings. Uh, from this point on, we insist on being with you, but being with you on the takeoff. And so this became the impetus uh, for the establishment beyond the G8, for the G20. And it is Saudi Arabia within the G20 that represents the other GCC countries and other developing countries of the 130 uh, so-called developing nations in the world. And more on the global aspect has been Saudi Arabia remaining wedded to the American dollar as the financial instrument for its international uh, transactions. And this is no small uh, feat and no small contribution uh, to uh, global financial stability in terms of investors and trade and those who seek to anticipate, plan, predict, and prepare better for uh, strategic advantage and economic gain. And when people say that the kingdom is of no importance other than oil, uh, this belies the fact of what I just mentioned, that once uh, financial dynamics are uncoupled from the oil and gas industry that produces those financial benefits, they have a life all their own in terms of international financial banking institutions with global uh, implications. 
And in terms of the regional and the global, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States, we need to be reminded, uh, stood with the United States, perhaps more than any other developing country throughout the Cold War, uh, from beginning to end. And indeed, it participated with the United States, as did Pakistan and others, and driving, so to speak, the last nail in the Red Army's coffin uh, in terms of Afghanistan. And together we were shoulder to shoulder in helping to bring about the end of the Iran-Iraq War with UN Resolution 598 of July the 15th, 1987, the first unanimous United Nations Security Council vote since the Korean War on a war and peace uh, issue with Saudi Arabia's then Foreign Minister Saud al-Faisal uh, working with the 10 non-permanent members of the UN Security Council, the United States working with the, the five uh, permanent members. And in the course of that success, uh, bringing about a ceasefire in that long war throughout the 1980s, from 80, 1980 to 1988, uh, the two of us working together prevented the Iranian Revolution from expanding uh, across the Gulf uh, to the western side of the Gulf and to eastern Arabia. These I submit are no small feats. These are strategic victories and achievements of no small moment. Uh, and in terms of the regional aspect, I mentioned the League of Arab States and the Gulf Cooperation Council, but there's also the Organization of Arab Petroleum uh, uh, Exporting uh, Countries uh, based in Kuwait. And that Saudi Arabia has willy-nilly, almost by default, more than by design, more than by aspiration, more than by assertion, has become the Arab leader. Uh, with Egypt on the sidelines, with Iraq off the board, with Syria in shambles, uh, it has fallen to Saudi Arabia uh, to play this uh, uh, leadership role. Uh, to try to uh, uh, establish peace, security, and stability, without which there are no prospects uh, for prosperity. Uh, and in this regard, our speaker will be uh, open to uh, answering questions about any and all of what I have uh, just indicated, because the kingdom, in many ways, is a continent more than a country. It has 13 neighbors. You put yourself in the shoes of Oman, Oman has three neighbors. Put yourself in the shoes of Bahrain. Bahrain has three neighbors. Uh, what if we Americans had 13 neighbors? Uh, we believe we have uh, two neighbors uh, and we have uh, the benefit of two very peaceful seas. Uh, and actually we have more than two neighbors. Uh, we had a, a governor of Alaska who was a vice presidential candidate <laughs> and she looked at every day on on a third neighbor, <laughs> very straight regarding uh, uh, Russia, and then uh, the Caribbean islands as well. Uh, but John F. Kennedy was once uh, known to have gathered all of the then-living American Nobel laureates uh, to dinner at the White House. And in his introductory remarks, he said something to the effect of, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, gathered here this evening an assemblage of uh, talent and, and gifts in the arts and the social sciences, uh, more than has ever uh, been gathered here before with one exception, and that was when Thomas Jefferson dined here alone. Uh, we have one individual who uh, is capable of playing 
a comparable role in terms of the Nawaf Obeid. Uh, Nawaf Obeid it seems to be the Marco Polo of uh, think tanks, uh, or the, in Arabic, the Ibn Battuta of uh, think tanks there. And with a twinge of masochism on top of everything else, he was a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, long known from its inception as uh, a brain trust uh, for the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee. Uh, he has a degree from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he's a fellow at the moment at the Belfort uh, Center at Harvard uh, for Leadership and Science. He's done work on his doctorate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He served as a strategic communications advisor <clears throat> to Turkey El Faisal and he was ambassador uh, to the court of St. James in the United Kingdom as well as in the United States. Uh, he served as a strategic advisor to Mohammed bin Nawaf, uh, Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United Kingdom up until this uh, past uh, year. <clears throat> Please help me welcome Nawaf away. for coming this morning. I know you're not coming here to listen to me. You just have nothing better to do. <laughs> but thank you, nonetheless. Um, I'm going to give you a brief presentation about how and when we see things. Uh, my colleagues and I, especially for me, I, my colleagues being in the different uh, uh, ministries and uh, organs uh, within the Saudi government, especially on the national security and uh, foreign policy side. Um, if you have any questions throughout the PowerPoint, just stop me so I can, because it might get a bit confusing at some point, especially with all the changes that are ongoing. Um, Pat, you want to yes. start it off? So. I will do. Is it clear? <coughs> Sorry. Um, As you've all witnessed over the last several months since the um, since the coming to the throne of uh, the new king, King Salman bin Abdulaziz, there's been uh, uh, a complete uh, change in uh, Saudi strategic posture, as well as uh, as well as how the leadership and the new leadership, in this case, are willing to. Um, go by asserting national security prerogatives and what they see as Saudi's uh, long-term interest. Very quickly, it's been a little confusing for some people. So what happened by, after the death of the late King Abdullah was as through the normal line of succession in Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, which was anointed by him uh, several years before that, became king. Now, where the change happened, and where a lot of people are a bit confused about it, was that the, the creation of, if you want, the deputy crown prince, which is a very unique position, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in other countries that have similar um, um, political um, formats. In the sense that because of the importance 
of the kingdom and the responsibility which I will try to communicate a bit more elaborately uh, in the next slide. Um, king Abdullah, the late King Abdullah, decided to name a crown prince in waiting. And in doing so, it was a system that he thought would be put in place to assume the generational shift that at that time he thought was coming at any time. And in doing that, he was able to put in place the framework by which King Salman was able to nominate the first member of the third generation from the main line of succession to, uh, uh, to the throne. And in this case, the, nom the nominee was uh, Prince Muhammad bin Naif, <coughs> a lot of you here that have worked in DOD, at CIA, and at other national security establishments know quite well. And so he assumed the position of crown of the deputy uh, crown prince. And what is the confusion that I see from speaking to people and reading some of the press from the US is that there, there seems to be an understanding that there was a lot of resistance to that. Well, in fact, there wasn't, especially among the senior members of the royal family, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, there was an understanding that he would be the most uh, capable candidate for the good of the country mid to long term to assume that position. And then two weeks ago, the same person, Prince Mohammed bin Naif, became the crown prince. Again, the first of the third generation of the main line of succession to assume the position of heir to the Saudi throne. And in that, that paved the way to name another of the third generation of the royal family to the position of deputy crown prince. So that framework was put in place uh, by King Abdullah, by the late King Abdullah, in order to put a structure to it in order for that generational shift that had to happen because of uh, the, because there were very little um, individuals left from the second generation, sons of the founding king, Abdulaziz, to assume the throne. So, so far, it's been a success. The, the succession has proceeded quite um, smoothly, and uh, you've seen the um, consequences of that. So, the new leadership has inherited a situation, a geopolitical situation, as I like to call it, of how Saudi Arabia finds itself in the region, in the Arab world, in the region, and in the world. And so these are all pretty, for a lot of you, they're pretty much the ABCDs of what you all know. But it's important because this puts into perspective this new national security doctrine, this new foreign policy assertiveness that you've all been seeing over the last uh, several months. So as uh, Dr. Anthony said, the G20 very important, hence a lot of um, the possibility to change, to to reboot foreign policy, to have a complete new defense posture being allowed by the amount of enormous resources available to the government in order to push through these programs. Energy being a big uh, being a big part of Saudi policy as well as Saudi influence, and you've all followed through what happened, what happened last year when Saudi Arabia decided to floor. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's production capacity, not cut back, the decrease in oil prices, and the geopolitical change that we've had, that that is bringing, and we're still seeing it uh, today. And then ultimately, which is at the core of all the conflicts in the various countries of the Arab world that have um, Shia minorities, is the issue between Sunni and Shias across the Arab world. There's something that's, again, misunderstood because there are certain demographic imbalances that make that conflict as much as it is there, 
limited in scope to what you could actually be offered the medium term. And we need to get into this uh, later on. Um, then we get more into where Saudi Arabia finds itself today on the foreign policy front. So a big aspect of what the kingdom was in a way obliged to do since the uh, uh, upheavals and revolutions of 2011 was to help and sustain a lot of the countries that went through the uh, turmoils. And so you have one of the, today one of the largest foreign aid programs uh, up there basically being uh, concentrated more towards Arab and Muslim countries, and especially Arab countries that went through the upheavals. So you have Egypt, you have, um, you have uh, well, Yemen, that's a different case. You have uh, Jordan, you have all kinds of countries um, that have been at the receiving end of it. Packages. And then the new leadership is also inheriting a historical relationship with a lot of the major world powers, especially its key historical um, allies, the US and France and Britain. And of course, the relationship that a lot of people here in DC love to talk about and assume things and not assume things, Pakistan. Uh, then we have our, our pivot our energy pivots to Asia because of the um, revolutionary, because of the technological revolutions in the energy industry here in the US were having a huge impact on Saudi uh, trade uh, balances, <coughs> China, India, and Japan. And then we get into the crust of why Saudi Arabia, this is the beginning, this is the elements of why the kingdom you're seeing this new assertiveness and this new change in tactics. We perceive Russia not necessarily as an enemy, but as, we're, as our main adversary today, on various fronts, be it, in the, be it in the energy market, be it in its role in the Arab world, in most cases, um, siding with the camp that we're openly against, and ultimately having this uh, dialogue with the Russians where they perceive Islam as being an existential threat to a lot of the domestic stability. So there is good, there's good discussions ongoing between uh, the two countries. And so the, the notion of Russia being a potential long-term enemy has been always subsided to being an adversary. But it is still a, a quite a big adversary. And then we get to what are the, ba what are the basics from this? And these are our enemies. For obvious reasons, and especially for uh, all the attacks that have happened in Saudi Arabia uh, in the last decade, ISIS and Al-Qaeda will remain the major <coughs> enemies of the Saudi state and the Saudi kingdom. Uh, anyway, this is a permanent state. But what we also have, which is very unfortunate, is our newfound um, face-off, if you like to call it, with Iran. And this is something that's, good, that's being put into the Saudi system as a permanency for the time being, because we don't see any potential changes on their on their posture <coughs> with their help to the non-state actors which are causing so much uh, mischief and uh, problems in the Arab world. Across, and with Iran, all the non-state actors, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, um, you think about a Shia movement that's being supported by Iran and there are enemies. It's as simple as that. So the new leadership in Saudi Arabia came in and decided to what were, what was going to be their first um, their first big play 
what was going to be the basis by which their governance, their strategic posture, is going to be identified by. And these are, in broad terms, the main points by which the major concentrations of their governance and power would go to. So defending the homeland is given counterterrorism. It's been there for such a long time. So. Two and three are the big ones, bolster the defense of partner and allied states. So here what you have, you, for example, have a case study by which Saudi Arabia funded a $4 billion program to the Lebanese armed forces uh, with France. So the Lebanese government asks the French for their weapons requirements, and the Saudis directly uh, make the payments uh, to the French. This is a model that is most probably going to be replicated with other countries. Um, that are part of this new um, coalition that has been put together over the last several months. Um, the threat of weapons of mass destruction, this is a basis and hence a basis of our, a lot of our disagreements with the current uh, administration about the identification of, of, uh, of the different um, technical aspects of the Iranian nuclear program. But this is a this is, if you want, this is a grounded policy that was established by King Faisal, and especially seen through by King Khalid, where the kingdom would not want to see any kind of WMD, especially nuclear weapons. But with the new changes happening, and with still this aura of confusion about what a deal would look with the Iranian nuclear program, this point is the only one that's up for grabs for the time being. And then the two big priorities by which you've seen some of it already happening in the kingdom are the streamlining and the re-energizing of the Saudi institutions, governing institutions. So, oh, sure. Excuse me. You said it's up for grabs. Could you clarify what you mean by that? Well, I mean, if Iran, let's say, in a let's say in a in a world where the Iranians are are allowed to keep, um, let's give it. A, after a certain amount of time, they were allowed to enrich and be here at the threshold of having nuclear weapons, then it is understood that we would want to have more or less the same kind of um, parity. So although this is specifically against what's the doctrine that's currently being put forward, this is something that we'll have to consider if whatever end game on the, on the nuclear deal, on the Iranian nuclear deal looks like. And then the last two points are the most important ones for the new leadership, and they've already started to happen. So they basically not only removed officials from that had been in the government for decades, they actually took out and, uh, and, uh, and canceled a lot of councils and committees and so forth. Over 20 of them were councils and, and, uh, and uh, ceased to exist. And two major councils were, were put in were were, put in, um, were established, who basically are the two councils by which the Saudi government functions today. One for development and um, economics, which is the big issue, dealing with the big issue, which are uh, public housing, unemployment, and uh, how do you um, incentivize the non-oil sector. These are, the two, three, these are the three big issues on the first council. On the second one, it deals with um, policy, and uh, politics, basically, the domestic security and, and foreign policy. And this is basically today how this whole, this massive new changes are going to be pushed through on the domestic side. And then finally, 
which comes back, which gets us right into the war in Yemen today and what is happening, is this new radical restructuring of the major organs of the government that deal with national security, defense, foreign policy, and energy. Energy, you've seen it. There's been a new council that has been created a bit for Saudi Aramco that actually is falls right under this new measures of uh, economic and development. The foreign ministry is going to go through some tectonic changes in the next several weeks. Um, the defense ministry is going through, and and has, that's been in the works for some time over the last two years, to be fair, and you've seen some of the results uh, in the war in Yemen. And now the national security, huge new changes at the the, at the General Intelligence Presidency, the main organ of the Saudi government uh, for the intelligence sector, as well as the other organs that deal with them on the security and intelligence side. So as Dr. Anthony was pointing out, this is where we live in. And it's, uh, on the map it looks very nice, but in reality, it's a, it's a very, very scary neighborhood. And so, from, if you just have, a, you, ha you have the map here, so I'm going to go up to the next slide. So, this is basically someone that's sitting in Riyadh that's assumed one of the high positions in foreign policy or national security or defense. This is the situation he's looking at. Now, I'm sorry, I've purposely repeated the same words for every country to show how, <laughs> how dangerous the situation is. So, someone sitting here has no country here, or he has basically no uh, counterpart to talk to about anything meaningfully, because the person sitting in these, in Baghdad, or in Sana'a, or in Tripoli, or in Damascus, his administration don't have control over most of the territory, right? So what you have is that someone sitting here, when he has an issue, who does he call? I mean, I've witnessed it. I'm still uh, somewhat, somewhat working on these issues. We have no one to call. So what you call is that we end up calling the non-state actors by which you are helping. And they seem to be much more influential in getting things done than the normal uh, actors, such as a foreign ministry or a ministry of defense or what have you. And so the scary part here is that the new leadership has inherited this situation. So on top of not having state, uh, nation states to be able to govern their respective territories, you actually have non-state actors from your two, from the groups that, and that are previously showed, who are your two permanent enemies. The Sunni Al-Qaeda's and the ISIS of the world, as well as the Iranian spheres of militias, who basically are filling the void. And hence, that brings us to this. So in response to one of the four countries that was falling apart, um, Saudi Arabia under the late King Abdullah, which is key to, to mention, started a, a plan to intervene militarily in Yemen. And that plan took several months to put together. It was, all, it was uh, at the time from its inception, it was overseen by the Crown Prince Salman, who is now King Salman. And basically, the idea was on two fronts. First, it was a political front, and second was the military front. The more difficult of the two was actually the political, 
was to put together a coalition. And it did work. After a lot of, um, uh, lot of negotiations, a lot of uh, meetings and so forth, the Saudi um, uh, diplomats were able to put together quite an elaborate regional coalition of um, most of the GCC states, except Oman, and that's for specific reasons, and bringing in the other natural allies that Saudi has had in the Arab world for some time, for what? Forever, actually, Jordan, Morocco, and of course, Egypt. Now, what we've also had, we've also had countries, again, comes back to the conversation we just had a minute ago about governments being nominal in government, but not really governing much. And so in this case, we've had a political a political declaration of membership from Yemen, Libya, and the Palestinian Authority. But the issue here is not so much to be able to have something on writing, but it was to do what does this new grouping mean for uh, the balance of power in the region. And this is when the extra step was taken, that this grouping would be uh, formed in order to go and to launch major military operations to safeguard the security as the grouping saw of their own um, of their own respective countries. So the Yemen war, if you want, is a case study by which this grouping in the future could go and do other such actions. And so this is why it's so important for the kingdom that this works out to the best possible uh, um, scenario. And so, uh, and so on, the Yemen, on the Yemen issue, why a lot of people keep asking, what's so big about Yemen? Why don't you do it in Syria? Well, we didn't do it in Syria because first we didn't have the planning and we didn't have the strategy as well as the weapon system in order to carry out Syria when it happened four years ago. <coughs> Two, we did Yemen because um, the Houthis managed to put, to uh, uh, to uh, deploy Scud B missiles not very far from our borders, ready to uh, attack and launch on Saudi cities. And this, for some reason, was missed by a lot of people. So in a way, it was the launch was there for two reasons. It was first to protect Aden from falling, but more importantly was to destroy all of the heavy weapon establishment that the Houthis and the Salaf Brigade had. And to a very large extent, this has happened today. And then we get into what you have a political um, idea, you have a, you have a strategic vision, you have a doctrine, but then you need the weapon system to back it up. And so over the next, uh, we're actually in the middle of this cycle, 2015 today, we're in the middle of it. You have a Saudi massive <coughs> expansion and development program of its armed forces, which a lot of it is with companies here in the US, dealing with, uh, with the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. The Navy just yesterday, the first of the batch of the Navy expansion program was signed and announced in the press. So what you have is that you have, so you, you have on the political, you have it on the on the regional diplomatic uh, side, but you also have it to back to back it up. And so we start having that kind of force power available to do so, and hence why the Yemen war came about. So we're committed over a hundred planes to the Yemen with 150,000 troops uh, deployed to move it. So we have these kinds of numbers. So the army went from 200 to 300,000, the National Guard from 100 to 200,000. But these numbers don't mean much for someone that's not within the, the military establishment. What they show is that you have a commitment to, to substantially increase the armed forces as well as a commitment to spend a lot on training. 
which in the case, which in the past wasn't the case. We always like to buy the, the nice stuff. But in this case, there's a large portion of a lot of this money that's going into training, and hence what Dr. Anthony just said. We have three massive training missions today in Saudi Arabia, each one for the different uh, ministries, National Guard, Ministry of Defense, and Ministry of Interior. And so um, this slide will be, put, will be put up on the website and will distribute if you want to go more into the details of the numbers. But it's important to, get, to, to have an understanding of the commitment of the leadership to this new posture. The more important one is here, actually, the Navy. And this is something that's been re-emphasized. So I'm just going to walk over to explain this a bit. So the Fahed line was put, was put uh, was created on, um, by the late King Fahed at the time of the tanker wars in the Gulf between um, um, when there was... So it, it was... Um, uh, it was uh, at the time the tank war was, the, where it was at the height of the um, uh, Iraqi-Iranian war. And what had been seen at that time was that Iranian fighters doing uh, um, bombing raids on the south to stop the Iraqi advance started coming into what was at the time Kuwaiti and Saudi uh, airspace. So several warnings went out and the Iranians did And then one day the Iranians actually went over and were basically what we still don't know or the intentions were actually going directly towards Rastanura. So King Fahed put on the map this line that any Iranian aircraft would cross it would be shot down. And so um, the Iranians thought it was a bluff. So they actually had two um, F-4s coming across, and at that time the, there was a first or second batch of Saudi pilots that had been trained on the new F-15s that the Royal Saudi Air Force had received, and they went up to intercept them and they shot them both down. So this has been re-emphasized now under King Salman, of this kind of doctrine. But it's not only here. It's here and it's down in the Arabian Gulf. And so what you have is that you have a real case example of it just last week, with all the fanfare of the Iranians saying that they're going to bring in the, the aid ship um, into Fadeda uh, and not go through the normal inspections as set up by the coalition in Riyadh. Um, this, this was re-emphasized. They will be boarded by the Saudi Navy and with the consequences that anyone could imagine. And so what happened was that smartly the Iranians actually turned around and actually are, I think, arrived or are going to Djibouti to get the proper inspections from, uh, the, from the UN in Djibouti before they're allowed to proceed to Fahed. <coughs> so this, so this re-emphasis of the doctrine of not only preemptiveness, but as well of being able to uh, block uh, Iranian actions in the area when they're clearly in violation, in this case of uh, UN san of UN sanctions, um, of the UN resolution on the Yemen war, was emphasized with this. So just something to bear in mind when you're thinking about Saudi uh, comments and, and uh, weapon system uh, purchases in the future. And the importance here, which shows also the success of this relationship between Saudi Arabia and America has been how the Air Force has conducted itself so far during, uh, uh, during the, um, the Yemen war. So what you have here is that you have a huge new development that's, gonna, that's happening. And we have the new batch of new variants of the F-15s, which is still something untested about how good they really are, which is slowly going to start coming into the Saudi fleet. 
And if you see down there, this is key because it's all about how good these airplanes are. And so far, we've been able to establish three major platforms. That's important because usually Air Force is when you reestablish the new platform, it costs a lot of money to train them. You have to train a whole force. You have to. It's a it's a whole different way of how of how do you engage in warfare. And we decided that they have three major platforms now with very advanced planes. And so it makes the Iranian aerial threat all the more um, non-existent, because the Iranians won't have any of this kind of generational plane. And even that, that's debated how much they actually have that could actually pose a serious threat. Their threat from their side is a missile attack. And a missile will have to hit something, and hence a war would start. With, with, with airplanes, it's different. It's, it's controlled. So this has been, if you want, the centerpiece of this, uh, of this uh, Yemen, uh, of this Yemen uh, war as well as being able to manage a coalition. So you have a hundred of these planes that are being put for, um, uh, for the Yemen, and you have another 70 or 80 from the coalition who are also uh, taking part in these, um, in these uh, aerial attacks from various Saudi bases. And it's all being managed um, by coalition, mainly by Saudi officers, and it shows a certain level of sophistication in being able to sustain such a campaign for so long. On that note, the plan is, and this is something that's important, that this campaign isn't for the short term. So this campaign will go on. The initial plans are for up to six months, and if not, and if and if that's not settled, between six to to a year. So this is not something that was launched for it to end within a month. We understand that there is there is a we're working from a handicap, which is one that we came late to the game, and two that there is no intent on putting ground troops there, because you don't go into a Yemen with ground troops, with all the different, um, with its specific landscape, as well as its non-state actors. This is just a, this is just a minefield. And then you have, and then if you want, uh, if you have any more questions, we can, you can email me, but these are also some of the developments that's gonna go within the Marines and the Navy. And then finally, conclude, I'll leave, conclude with this um, map. It's all about, unfortunately, the problems, what you all see today, it's about countries where there are important Sunni and Shia communities. From the 57 member countries of the, that are part of the Organization of Islamic St uh, State, which is based in Jeddah here, three of them have the Shia majority population. Uh, Iran, Iraq, and Bahrain, which is right there. Normally, you actually do have Azerbaijan up there, which is actually majority Shia, but that's because of the communist uh, inherit inheritance. That's a bit moot. So. But anyway, so what you have is that you have, a, you have issues in Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon. All countries that have not all same Shia denominations, by the way, but all strains of Shiism. And this is where, unfortunately, you have this uh, cleavage. In most of the of the Muslim world, which is in uh, bright, uh, which is in uh, clear uh, green here, you hardly find any Shia communities. So you don't. So, for example, the conflict in Libya is a political one. It's not so much as is in Egypt. So the importance here is why is this map revealing is because there is a certain demographic imbalance that you don't find in Christianity, for example, where you have around 90% being Shia. So there will always be a limit to what to the spread of Iranian influence or hegemony, which is, you know, every time I see Iranian hegemony in the area, it's very amusing, especially knowing the Iranian, Iran's domestic and economic and military uh, situation. 
But this is something that people should keep in mind because this is how we see it. So uh, people always assume Saudi Arabia has a huge issue with Shias and so forth. Our religious establishment do because this is a completely different debate about the theology behind it. But we're also very cognizant of this reality and we work with this very, um, very carefully. Thank you. stand here together and I'll try to read the questions and you respond as you uh, please. I neglected, I think, to uh, recognize uh, Oliver Zandona uh, in the audience uh, who is a member of our board of directors on the There in the back. I thought he never stood for anything but he uh, we only have 70 questions here. Uh, <laughs> which is a, comp a compliment to you. Um, I'll read two. Uh, can you take three questions at a time? And then uh, that will allow more to be asked. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I will try to find a theme, but they don't all um, have a common theme. Uh, what plans for improved human rights does the new king profess to be inclined to pursue? What are the prospects for Saudi Arabia of seriously pursuing nuclear weapons? And how will the new king in his court change, if at all, the long-standing preference of the court for dealing uh, closest with the United States in light of current U.S. policy. In other words, might there be a shift towards China, India, or another country? So human rights. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, the human rights issue in Saudi Arabia is proving to be the trickiest because there is a lot, there's lively debate within the um, establishment about cases of when people are arrested, of the why, what is the due process, um, the situation, for example, of how is the rule of uh, of the ladies going to develop inside the yeah. um, There is a link. I say this because it's an ongoing debate, and there's a realization that a lot dealing with the human rights situation, uh, how it's being pursued, is uh, is not going well. And I personally have a lot of issues with certain of the individuals that have been that have been jailed, or the way they've been jailed, and for what reason, and so forth. But as I've learned by my long term as advisor within various governmental organs that these issues are better resolved by being out of the press. And there's been, there's been developments, especially on the women's side, as much as people out here might believe that they're uh, small steps. But um, it's uh, unfortunately, when you, for example, take the role of women in the workplace, or you take the role of women in, say, in the Shura Council, I mean, King Abdullah, like King Abdullah was very, it's very courageous to go against the entire, most of the entire establishment for that to happen. 
And so, but that was done behind closed doors. What everyone finally found out was when the royal decree came out, it was happening. Now, these women are complaining as well as the men about the redefinition of the Shura Council, for example. So you've kind of put them on a on an equal footing dealing with Shura Council. My aunt, actually, which I think some of you know, who is the former number two at the UN, is the first woman to actually head up a Shura Council, a committee. Funnily enough, it's a human rights committee on the Shura Council. So uh, for her, it's a, it's a, it's a promotion and disguise. But she's also very critical of how uh, certain governmental positive influence dealing with these issues. So it is a work in progress. Um, I'm happy to go into details if, if any of you have on specific issues. Uh, for example, how the Shia minorities in Saudi Arabia are, are, um, are um, uh, analyzed and talked about in the official media, as well as in the uh, as well as in the Twitter uh, and cyber sphere. So it's a work in progress. It's not going to be done overnight. I'm I'm fearful it will be decades before we have some sort of um, of balance in. Uh, criticism and in dealing with these issues, especially gender rights, minorities, and so forth. So yeah, I can't be more positive on that. Nuclear weapons, again, I know, this is referring to that story in the Sunday Times. I can't, um, it's a very lively debate. It's a lively debate if Saudi Arabia, after a deal is announced, whatever the, the composition of the deal, um, what it will do. And for now, from what I know, and I'm very vocal on this issue, uh, uh, the domestically be behind closed doors, is that we should have a program to guarantee a sort of parity with Iran. So, and for once, I am in the majority on this issue. It doesn't mean that we'll go and start uh, detonating nuclear bombs, no. But it means that we cannot afford, on the political strategic side, to have Iran going around boistering itself that it is a nuclear power in the region. It just won't work for us. So it's, it's, it's much more convoluted than say, okay, we have nuclear weapons. It's everything that comes with it. The shift, no, I mean, the US is still, for Saudi Arabia and for the world, it's still the main, uh, the main guarantor of the international security. What, where the shift is, is that it's no longer the guarantor as seen by the new leadership of Saudi security, which is, which is fundamental here for the legitimacy of uh, the monarchy and the, and the new uh, leadership. So I'll give you an example. In Camp David, a lot of the press focused on uh, security reassurances and so forth. Yes, that was security reassurances for the Gulf states. When for us, what we asked for, we didn't ask for reassurances, we asked for clarity. And this is very important because a lot of people still are confused about that. You know, when a country is devoting to so much resources and being able to put 150,000 <coughs> troops on standby, for a, for a war in Yemen, it's not a country that need, that's kind of needs secure assurances from Iran, knowing the Iranian military situation and what dire straits they are in. So it's very important to shift. The shift is not in terms of we're going to other countries because we don't have that historical relationship with other countries anyway, but it is that the meaning of the relationship and the fundamental basis of it are changing. Doesn't mean they're going to go. The countries are, are going to distance themselves. That there's going to be a new meaning to it. These, these three are original questions. Um, please address uh, Saudi Arabia's inclusion of Sudan and the coalition, Saudi Arabia's relations with Egypt, and Saudi Arabia's uh, relations with policies and positions towards Libya. So, 
Egypt, Libya, Sudan. I, uh, I am very sorry about the Sudan uh, mission here. That's my fault. Yeah, no. The Sudan inclusion is actually quite important because we've, we've had frosty relations with them for some time. Again, dealing with the whole, uh, oops, sorry. Again, dealing with the whole <coughs> issue of the brotherhood. Um, happy that it's been, it's been, uh, it's been worked out. I'm happy it's been worked out and the fact that they've <coughs> come in and they've uh, deployed some of their best aircraft with their resources to this conflict is has been very highly appreciated by King Salman, as I understand it. So um, I'm sorry for the Sudan mission. That is a, that is a mistake. <coughs> Please, I apologize for asked the question. Um, Egypt. What is the question? Uh, Saudi Arabia's relations with Egypt. Well, with Egypt is there. I mean, the Saudi <coughs> government is committed to the Sisi government economically, politic uh, politically, and security-wise, and there's been already an enormous amount of funds that have been dispersed to keep that government afloat. Now clearly, um, as time is progressing, we are clearly having differences on some of the major issues in the region, and especially Syria. <laughs> so um, again, the Egyptians are not very clear about what they want. It's again this issue of clarity. A diplomat says something, the higher ups says something else. So we're still in the thing of not knowing exactly what the Egyptians are thinking. But overall, we are committed to CC and to him being able to kickstart that economy and bring back some uh, some sort of uh, stability and security to the uh, to the existing government. And Libya. Mm -hmm. uh, Libya. This is something that the previous king has uh, has on purposely uh, decided to stay out of <laughs> because of the conflict uh, there and because of the. Um, the tension of what happened when Gaddafi was overthrown. Now there has been a new um, effort by the war, actually by the war in Libyan faction, to have the Saudi role in it. And uh, so uh, it is something that I understand the new leadership is looking into seriously uh, to have uh, some form of mediation on both sides. Because uh, uh, on the battlefield, it's still uh, the there's been some progressions made from the Haftar Brigade, but we're still far away from having a decisive victory. And by the time we, we, we have one, the whole country will basically have gone up in flames. So expect some form of a more uh, of a more um, open and assertive Saudi role in Libya going forward. Continuing on the um, international aspect, uh, there's been some talk about uh, King Salman revising uh, the late King Abdullah's 2000 uh, uh, March 31st in Beirut uh, peace proposal to Israel that's been renewed and uh, unanimous by all the Arab uh, late countries and uh, addressing uh, nearly every demand not every demand that Iran has always made in terms of a peace uh, what a peace agreement would entail between itself and the Arab world. Uh, and then not related to that though necessarily is uh, how wise is it to list or refer to the Shia as enemies of Saudi Arabia? Uh, even Iran is not assumed to be an enemy. Uh, and this uh, has major repercussions 
does it not, wouldn't it be better to call the Shia militias or Iran as concerns or issues rather than enemies? Um, and uh, are there differences with, within the ruling family regarding Iran? Uh, we know that uh, King Abdullah went to um, Tehran in the late 1990s, and uh, that seemed to make a difference on the meetings and the personalities. Uh, there were uh, closenesses of various kinds with Rafsanjani, distances of various kinds with Ahmadinejad, and seeming uh, potential closeness with uh, Rouhani. Could you um, um, address these? peace process and Shia-Iran related questions. On the, um, on the peace process, the new uh, leadership, um, they're not going to make any changes to it. It's still there on the table. And it's, we still believe, and a lot of other countries believe, that it's the main framework by which uh, they can have a sustained uh, settlement. The problem is that you will see what the Israelis have done through discourse during the elections and you now kind of individuals that they've appointed in their government. So we're not very hopeful. Um, even the Israelis on the left, on the labor side, are not very hopeful about, uh, about any serious progress. But to my understanding, the peace process still remains and is still in place. On the Shia public discourse, um, it's very important, as I, as I noted, the issue is not Shias, it's Iran and Shia-affiliated militias. They are our enemies. It's a fact. We're not going to kid ourselves. It is what it is. If you hear some of the rhetoric coming out of Iran, I mean, Rouhani, which is supposed to be the most sensible of them, came out and said that Saudi Arabia suffers from emotional and psychological disorder. So if someone says that on the different human being, that's one thing. But when someone says that about a whole country, it shows you there's inherently something very wrong there. And this is one of the, one of the better lecturers that have come out from the Iranian side. The Shia um, militias, I mean, they're very clear. There is not much of a commonality between uh, between Saudi supported groups or Saudi Arabia and them. And so um, it will. I will be wasting a lot of time if I came up with other word other than enemy. And this is something that's widely shared among mm -hmm. the Saudi establishment and widely shared among senior members of, of the royal family as well as officials who are directly dealing with these um, uh, with these uh, cases day in and day out. Um, the follow-on to that is how can Saudi Arabia fight Iran and Shia if not in the process empower its Sunni enemies or jihadists? Um, Questions are asked because Saudi Arabia doesn't enjoy a monopoly over uh, Sunni extremism, uh, nor does it have a monopoly uh, over the geo-sectarian uh, conflict. Um, uh, witness uh, ISIS or Daesh, witness Al Qaeda. How do we expect to fight? Uh, well, the way that we've, we've been fighting, is, as I put up on the board, it's using this new framework and these new political, economic, and military blocks to do so. Um, um, in doing that, we're fighting both the Daesh of the world as well as the uh, Shia militias. Um, I'm not sure about the question. Um, 
if you're uh, taking the fight to Iran and the Shia, uh, this seems implicitly to entail empowering uh, Sunnis because they are the ones that will be taking the fight to the Shia. But among the Sunnis are extremists uh, that surely Saudi Arabia would not or could not countenance. Uh, yes, but, um, that's absolutely correct, and this is our dilemma. Um, we're seeing it in Yemen today, where uh, we also have a big problem by going after the Houthis, but we also have uh, Al-Qaeda who were limited in their respective sphere trying to um, expand. Uh, in uh, Syria, we found a way by supporting groups that are actually, uh, that are actually uh, in currently um, forming themselves to be in even a bigger for, uh, fighting force than at least Jobat and Nusra. And they've been the cause of a lot of the new um, victories um, in Syria. So, but this is a very, this is the fundamental dilemma that Saudi Arabia and the coalition do have. If you attack one, you cannot attack one and leave the other. And we made a mistake, we, Saudi Arabia, America, by launching this coalition against the ISIS without hitting the other side. And this was, in a way, it was haphazardly done, and it hasn't had any real effect on the ground. Uh, over the summer, where the coalition, the US-led coalition, started hitting ISIS up north in Syria, and leaving uh, Bashar to keep his barrel bombs attacks on the people. And so this is, uh, a reality that we couldn't sustain. And so with this new formation, with this new is to be able to hit at both at the same time with having a real fighting force on the ground with the new um, groups that are being formed. So can I just make a, a different yeah. um, The enemy here is not Shias. The enemies, as I said very clearly, is Iran and Iranian allied Shia militias. But it's a very big difference between Shias being considered an enemy and they're not. We have a lot of Shia Arabs that are today being very courageous in coming out and, and publicly countering these militia groups, especially in Iraq and, uh, and in Yemen. And we're seeing what's happening to them. In Lebanon, too, a lot of them are risking their lives in Lebanon by being very vocal against Hezbollah. It's very clear, the, the, the wording must be very clear, that it's not about Shias as a group. We just had a terrible um, attack this morning in Saudi Arabia against the Shia mosque in Katif, the, the Shia enclave in Katif. And the first ones to actually denounce it, you know, you find it funny, is the senior council of Ulama in Saudi Arabia, which represents the very strong Salafi strand of Islam. So there's a difference between between disagreeing theologically, which we do, and there is and branding them as enemies. We have <coughs> the political actors who are using uh, the Shia faith in order to do what they're doing. These are we're very clear about it. The section is more on the domestic scene and um, with internal dynamics, and, and there have been six of these. I'm trying to have them in, in batches of two or three. Um, is there any uh, truth to uh, what has been bantered about? Uh, that the uh, biggest changes uh, in the kingdom have already come uh, because they came so swiftly uh, upon the passing of the, the king. Uh, is this, uh, does this have any validity or do you anticipate um, additional changes coming in the uh, near term ahead? Um, 
some Saudi Arabians have said that the first 100 days of King Solomon's rule have had a bigger effect on the kingdom than the previous years combined. Uh, how would you comment on that statement? And um, a third one, and then I'll stop on this. How will the next king of Saudi Arabia likely be chosen? Uh, what prospects uh, are there that it will be the crown prince Mohammed bin Naif? Um, no, there's going to be more changes. I mean, this is a, there's this is still we're still in the middle of it. There's going to be more changes. The emphasis will be on how do governmental institutions interact with the people. This is going. This is this is the key. Uh, uh, this is uh, the key uh, focus. So the focus is going to be on the services ministries. If you, some of you have seen. Since the king has come, since King Salman comes to the throne, there's been two services ministry that have been appointed and have been summarily dismissed. So the focus is on the complaints that a lot of Saudis have towards health ministry, public housing, um, commerce and industry doing a fantastic job. So he's surviving, he's actually being praised. So that we, there is, if you want, a role model by which other ministries can actually, other ministers, excuse me, can actually follow. So yes, there's going to be much more changes on that, and that means new institutions, means the, the taking out of other institutions, new names, uh, old names will be taken out, be it royal or royal, it doesn't matter. It's about a state, and it's about uh, citizenship. And what that's doing, all these changes, is that it's actually re-emphasizing this whole notion of what it means to be in Saudi. And so the recent changes have been very good because they've actually given a sense to the non-Saudi royal that everything that was possible. So you, you have a very able general that's taken over the main Saudi intelligence service, who was number two, who was the number two in the counterterrorism program, who did a lot of the, uh, of the big um, um, exploits in preventing Al-Qaeda from, from bombing places inside Arabia and outside of the kingdom. Uh, you have Abu, who has just been named the foreign minister after 40 years of Prince Abu, and so forth and so forth. So this has been a huge, uh, a huge hit with the Saudi people about how the the meaning of the citizenship uh, is uh, not only changing, but not only has it changed through the entire career, it's actually being changed on the ground. And hence, this is my PhD thesis, so I've been looking at this for a long time. 100 days, yes. Well, yes. I mean, in 100 days, Saudi Arabia has gone through changes that we haven't gone through in 30 years. So, obviously, yeah. And the reason as well. Uh, will that continue? Well, yes, because what you had is you had the generational shift. You had the way of doing business and conducting governance that was in a, in a, in a lot, not just, um, uh, not just uh, being criticized by people from the outside of government, but from people within <coughs> government, and in some cases at the senior level. So, um, yes, I, to some extent, I agree with that. But it's also unfair to dismiss the work that other monarchs have done, because they were, for example, King Fahed uh, was king when Saudi Arabia was going through a lot of changes, and regionally as well. Uh, king Abdullah went through so many wars as uh, crown prince and king of Saudi Arabia, so it's unfair to, in, in any different context. Saudi Arabia today has nearly $900 billion in net foreign assets because of what King Abdullah did during his reign. 
And so um, it's it's unfair just to dismiss the achievements of other monarchs. And they've also made their mistakes. So everyone's done good and bad. But in terms of that statement, yes, there's been a lot of changes that's happened. Um, well, and hence the framework for the who will be the next king. There's this new framework that's been put in place. And so unless there is something that's unforeseen, the next king will be Crown Prince Hamad bin Salah. And hence, he will again be the first king from the third generation to assume the, the Saudi throne. And so that framework has been put in place. Now, where it will be uh, emboldened is once you have that passed through the succession council, which is now um, which is now slowly going to be, if you want, routinized, or become the parlor by which future kings are. are <coughs> so for now, he's going to be. Still more on uh, domestic dynamics and uh, restructuring. Uh, one on on just that restructuring and, and links to on personalities. As Saudi Arabia restructures uh, its security and defense capabilities, is the integration of the Saudi Arabian National Guard in, into the Ministry of Defense being seriously considered? If not, why not? If so, what are the reasons? What are the considerations? What are the implications? Nicely put to There's been rumors about that for some time now. But um, because of how large the National Guard has become, and because of having its unique history, not so much as a fighting power, as a fighting force, but more as a force within the Saudi society, giving uh, free health care, free housing, free all of that. I personally would be against it. I don't think it's appropriate. I think you need a separate chain of command. and. Um, for now, I highly doubt that it will be the case. I may be wrong, but for now, um, I think that the National Guard, with all its weapons and delivery systems coming in to Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, being able to, now they've just established a new Air Force, the National Guard. Um, I don't think that this is uh, seriously being considered for now. Sometime, at some point down, down the road, maybe. But um, from my perspective, uh, I think this is just rumors. These next two have to do with personalities. Um, in the uh, early days of the New King's uh, accession, uh, the report was among the titles that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, his son, would have in addition to being the deputy to the uh, uh, Crown Prince um, and Minister of Defense, that he would be the chief of staff in the royal court. But then within days after that, a new name uh, came forth, and uh, that individual's name was Ahmed Suwailam. And uh, most in this audience do not have a clue uh, whether he's animal, vegetable, or mineral. Uh, in terms of his background, context, experience, and capabilities. Um, that's point one. Point two is that uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman if it's true, has received all of his education inside the kingdom. 
and this is uh, unique without precedent uh, to someone in a close uh, cooperative defense security intelligence counterterrorism relationship with the United States. Could you uh, paint a portrait of him or give us a better feeling? Uh, most have uh, no feeling, no insight, no information, no knowledge, no understanding of this new leader, who's uh, barely 30 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the new head of the royal court was actually the former deputy head of the royal court, and previously mm -hmm. was the um, was the, uh, was uh, no deputy head of the, the current court and before head of the. Crown Prince's Court, as number two, to Mohammed Salman. Basically, he comes from a family that have held high office in the court dealing with um, with citizens' issues and tribal affairs. Um, I personally worked five years with his uncle, mm -hmm. court, so I, I know him quite well. <coughs> and so basically, um, his position comes from the fact that he was number two to Prince Mohammed bin Salman when he was head of the Crown Prince's Court. Prince Mohammed bin Salman, when he was head of his father's, when his father's crown prince, this gentleman was his number two. So, so he's basically gone up one, and he's become the head of that. And that change makes sense because, as the question was uh, alluding to, uh, uh, having an individual with several positions, although historically that's been the case, in a new di in a new uh, in a new. Uh, leadership where they're actually redoing the whole administration and the dynamism of how Saudi government is supposed to operate, this would be very counterproductive. So that was a that was a that was actually a move that was expected. And so he's been in the report for all his life. He was with mm -hmm. with Prince Sultan, which you know when he was he used to be the man that sits behind uh, Crown Prince Sultan. He was English translator. That's it. Um, on the issue of education, yeah um, now um, a lot of that is still being done by officials that have had or have been educated in the U.S. or have worked with U.S. officials. So on the counterterrorism, national security, it's all been done, it's still being done through Prince Mohammed bin Naif. And on the foreign policy side, it's being done now through Abu. So technically, um, his role is more to be the, uh, the representative of his father in all these committees to be able to dispense Saudi, uh, to dispense his father's orders and uh, wishes. So I don't think that the, it's important if he does have an education outside or not. It's important is if he has the right ideas and the king trusts him. Yes. And in this case, the king has full trust in him and in his capabilities. Now, some people might agree with it or disagree. It's, uh, it's, the fact is that he is his father's uh, chosen um, Deputy to be to, to represent him on all these committees and see through the minute details, which King Salman would not do. And so far, uh, by the by the judge of the officials working around him, he's actually doing a good job. Why, in your view, was Prince Turkey Ben Abdullah? removed so quickly from his position as governor of Riyadh after the death of King Abdullah when he was so prominent in newspaper articles on technical development projects. This is a very informed audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but it's showing that it's showing that the leadership actually does have trust in the officer corps and in and in some people because it is being managed by them at the end of the day. And what you have is you have all these soldiers that are there at the front, knowing full well that they may be killed, they may be hurt, their life might change. And they're doing it and it's and it's and they're becoming popular, the whole notion of a Saudi-led war being popular, and you get this new sense of nationalism that's being built inside Arabia. So to the question of of uh, the Crown Prince Sultan, as much as he was a great leader and he had a huge um, influence on how Saudi administration was run, today it just doesn't matter anymore if you're a prince or if you're not a prince, or if your father was X, Y, or Z, it really doesn't matter. And so, um, and so on the contrary, if you are a prince and you're qualified, the odds are you will get a nice position. And if you're not a prince, if you are a prince not qualified and son of a former king, then you won't get a position. And that's what so far we're seeing happen. All right, this next one has to do with um, American um, realities. How can Saudi Arabia overcome the seeming prejudice in the U.S. Congress uh, to more military sales and technology uh, transfers and related to that, uh, given the uh, extraordinary influence of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu in the American Congress um, and his uh, interference in the American political system, um, how likely, if at all, is the kingdom going to make a viable peace process versus a diplomatic process? in the Arab-Israeli conflict in the foreseeable uh, future. Uh, each uh, communique ends with a statement about the Palestinian issue being the oldest, the biggest, the longest, the most pervasive of all of the obstacles and problems in the Saudi Arabian U.S. relationship and also prospects for regional security, peace, and stability. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is a fundamental question that that, I, that I've had to deal with, especially <coughs> the work that I've done on the defense doctrine up at Harvard, and with some of my colleagues back home. There is, I'll go even a step further. There is an issue about the U.S. commitment to Israel's qualitative military edge, and this is something that um, I think outside of this institution where we're in today is no longer viable because we have other sources of, um, of, of military purchases. <coughs> and in Europe, there isn't that declared issue. They're willing to sell you whatever you want. But that will ultimately, one day it will ultimately become a problem. And at Camp David, it was already there. It wasn't, the, it wasn't necessarily said, but it was in the air. Not with the Gulf States, but with us. And um, the issue is that we have diversified. So we have these crack your fighters that are doing a great job over Yemen. The French, they're going to give us all these uh, very fancy naval uh, missiles and boats and so forth. And so the issue, unfortunately, comes back to how is it going to be played out in the US? The case study here will be the F 35. And this will be the case study for it. So far, there's been no no official um, intent of going down that road, but this could be this this could become a real issue if the new leadership decides to make a call for it. 
we're not we're very happy with the new F fifteens that we're getting. So that if there's any Boeing people that are on here, don't worry. It's a new Bay Range. We're all very excited about it when it starts operating. It's called Saudi Advanced. So we're going to see how advanced it really is, right? Okay. So, and so we're all very happy with that. But again, this question is fundamental to the, at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia is the U.S.'s, by far, the U.S.'s largest weapon uh, purchaser. So you know, we're, nearly, we're nearing $100 billion of, uh, on order so far. And so the question is, um, is this really going to become a big major, uh, major issue or not? And ultimately, if you come back to the Arab Peace Initiative, then technically you don't have this threat coming from Saudi Arabia against Israel. But this is all too long in the future to see. This is something that most probably we would have to clash on at some point in the future. Yeah, we've made uh, the statement from this podium before that the region we're discussing today um, is laced with two kinds of, of oil, turmoil, and uh, that other kind. Uh, <laughs> this question is about that other kind. How might Saudi Arabia and or other GCC energy suppliers help Europe if uh, there is a major dispute uh, to come where uh, Russia will cut off or severely cut back or limit, it, limit its gas and other energy supplies uh, to Europe. Um, these are all energy questions. How can Saudi Arabia sustain low war prices in the long term? Can the price be fixed to a more sustainable price level, if only for uh, an extended period, so that people can plan more responsibly and beneficially? Um, and how can the United States benefit from Saudi Arabia's drive for clean energy uh, production? These are all energy-related questions, and you're not known for being an energy or energetic guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Russia, yeah. Um, thing with the, uh, the question on Europe. So a lot of Europe depends on natural gas coming in from Russia. Uh, as you, the energy folks here, Saudi Arabia is an excellent natural gas because it's. We believe we have enough now to sustain the Saudi development process, but not to the So here, we won't be able to help, but Qatar will be able to help. The problem is with this is that it costs a lot of money to put them on these really fancy ships and ship them all the way to Europe. So we're in a pickle on this one. On the oil side, we're not. That's doable. And that's where we have much more, we have a larger area of maneuverability on the oil side, especially with the, on the European market, where, uh, where we, where we have a substantial presence. You should have a bigger presence, but that's because there are a lot of um, competing actors there. So this is one. So I guess we're there, but the coalition with proper planning could have, could wing, could help Europe, but not to the extent that the European would feel secure enough, unfortunately. The sustained prices, so the, from my understanding, the sustained price, the prices have slowly been going up. So we have around, what we could use to uh, to uh, to pay off the budget deficits yearly, we are right now hovering around 750 billion net foreign assets. So that could see us through for some years to come. Now, with that in play, it is the um, it is the opinion of the corporate uh, planners at Aramco that the price will slowly start increasing over the uh, medium term. 
especially with increased demand, not from China, but from India, being the main market now that's going to have a boom. So we are very optimistic on that, and hence why the, the leadership is so intent on seeing this policy through about uh, not cutting back on production in order to lose uh, market share. Um, the third one was what? Natural one? Clean energy? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is this is this is actually one of the programs of uh, of, uh, of the new uh, measures for economics and development. This clean this clean energy, so, uh, solar and uh, so forth. Uh, it's still in its um, it's still in its very basic phase of development. Um, but from what from if this is one of the, this is supposed to be one of the main priorities. So you could expect a lot of developments happening on that in the next uh, in the next year, and that then falls into the white paper that was submitted by Dr. Hashemi Man, the head of the King Abdullah City for mm -hmm. Renewable Energy and Nuclear Energy. And the whole issue here is the government going to go through with these uh, civil nuclear reactors mm -hmm. that, will, that will be able to um, get an offload from Saudi and uh, petroleum domestic consumption. All right, we'll come to the uh, end of that session here. There. Maybe five other questions. No, there are a handful of other ones there, and I'll just articulate a few of them. But there's no time for you to answer them. But in case some want to come forward afterwards to speak with their speaker, um, uh, there are 150 Americans studying in Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is a first. This is a major breakthrough according to this uh, question. And uh, John Pratt and I went to the at the uh, University of Science and Technology where there were Americans present there. I don't know where the others are, uh, but if you compare and contrast this with some 200,000 uh, Saudi Arabian graduates of American institutions of higher education and uh, virtually no American graduates from Saudi Arabian institutions except some from the Nation of Islam from Umar uh, University in Mecca and Islamic University in Medina, but beyond those, uh, zero. So there's this massive imbalance uh, institutionally and individually. Uh, one, in terms of empirical uh, information uh, ourselves about Saudi Arabia, those of us here who've not had the privilege to live and work in Saudi Arabia, uh, versus those 200,000 plus Saudi Arabians who've lived and worked here and uh, eating a lot of rubber chicken and uh, turkey on Thanksgiving uh, days, but no Americans have uh, gone through in this audience a very few Ramadan there. So uh, when we try to think of um, this country and this relationship, uh, we have no choice to proceed with an element of humility. And uh, this comes um, not easily for many of us. We're not known for being in surplus uh, on the human tree of empathy. Uh, and yet we demand that everybody who comes to our country uh, know about us, uh, accept our values, our beliefs, our, our traditions, our customs, our principles. Uh, so where's the reverse? Where's the golden rule here? Uh, do not uh, do unto others that which you would not have others do unto you. Uh, so, uh, in terms of trying to deal with this challenge, uh, which is a self-inflicted wound, we cannot blame what I've just described on anyone other than ourselves. Uh, information is important. Uh, and we had 
fantastic information today because it, it dispels errors and facts and misconceptions. But information itself is alone not enough. But information is key to insights. And insights are something more than the information with regard to what we're trying to achieve here. I rarely get a call except from my parole office. So the information is key to the insights, and the insights are aha moments, triggering, uh, like Boba said, oh, my, my goodness, we didn't know this, but my gosh, I'll never say this again, or having said it in the past, I was a fool, but no longer will I be a fool. But information and insight themselves alone are still insufficient. Uh, but both of them are key to knowledge. And knowledge gives everyone a degree of self-confidence and an ability uh, to deal with those who don't have information, insight, and knowledge. And yet knowledge in itself must not be mistaken for being the same as understanding. The two are not the same, like snowflakes and fingerprints. Each one is, is different. Uh, but today we've had information, insight, knowledge, and a lot of understanding. And we have our speaker to thank for that. Thank you.